Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. You can read along on page 8 of your bulletin. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God. We're taking a break away from our current series uh, about the gospel according to Abraham uh, to observe the Advent. The Advent is a Latin phrase. It's a root, its roots are Latin, uh, meaning coming, the coming of Christ. Christians, we look and celebrate not only the coming of Christ, but in light of anticipating his return. And so this, this Advent period is really a period where we tend to pay special attention to the birth of Christ. And um, what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks into Christmas is looking at people who were mentioned in Scripture around the time of Jesus' birth. Today we're going to be looking at Joseph. We'll be looking in the following weeks uh, the shepherds or Mary, um, even Jesus himself. These are passages that exist in Scripture. Why these people, if you wonder? Like, why these particular people? And if you look at their circumstances, and if you look at what's going on in these scriptural texts, what it teaches us is this. What happens when Jesus comes closer into our lives? That's what these passages really teach us. When Jesus comes close into our lives, when Jesus enters into our lives, you think it would be happier, you think it would be easier, you think life would be funnier, but in actuality, life becomes messier, life becomes more complicated, life becomes turbulent, life becomes bumpy. And there are three lessons today, three things that this particular passage will teach us today as the start of really all of this. Three things we're going to learn. What Jesus does to our values what Jesus does to our fears, what Jesus does to our shame. Values, fears, shame. Those are the three things we're going to learn about today. First, what Jesus does to our values. And we see this in verse 18. Let me read. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? What's going on here? Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But then she finds out that she was pregnant. <clears throat> Mary is about to experience the two great joys, the two great anticipations of a woman in her society, incidentally, and a woman in our society, getting married, having a child, the two great joys. But what happens, I mean, if you think about this, in a close traditional religious society structure like in Mary's day, you know, you never get pregnant, you never get pregnant before you get married. Mary's about to commit social suicide. 
She's about to become an outcast. Why? Because she's pretty much committing the two great societal sins in her day. One, she's getting pregnant before she's married. And the second thing is, she's, uh, the, the baby that she's about to have doesn't belong to her fiancé. So those are two great societal sins in her day. And as a result of that, Joseph, poor Joseph, experiencing utter disappointment. I mean, the joy of Mary, it's crushed because she's, he's about to experience utter, utter disappointment. His world is just completely thrown awry. And if you look at verse 19, it says, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So what did he do? He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Mary's world completely turned upside down. Why? Because Jesus is coming close into, his, into her life. But at the same time, Joseph's world is turning completely upside down. Why? Because he's close to Mary. And as a result, Jesus is coming closer to his life as well. Why is this the case? If you think back to when you first came to the Lord, if you first came to becoming a Christian, what happened? Now, Everyone's spiritual journey, everyone's experience is very, very different, and in no way am I saying that we should all have the same type of experience. Every one of us came to Jesus differently, but there were some common normative elements. For instance, when Jesus comes into your life, what happens? Things that you once took joy in, things that once you took pride, that you once took pride in, things like money, power, sex, marriage, your career, your status, your pedigree, your connections, all these kind of things, these are all necessary to some degree, but what happens? All of them. When you come to Christ, when Jesus comes closer into your life, you come to a startling conclusion that these things are not that important. They're actually necessary, but they're not sufficient to bring joy. And in many cases, a lot of these things become a source of guilt in our lives. These things have have moved us into a lifestyle, and it's caused a lot of guilt in our lives. What's happening in our lives when we come closer to Christ, or actually rather when Christ comes closer to us in our lives? Our values are becoming turned, they're becoming overturned, they're turning upside down. Your view of the world, the gospel shapes your view of the world, how you see life, how you live life, the things that you take joy in, the things that you celebrate in. And the reason why this is the case is because as the gospel enters into your life, Jesus becomes your source of joy. Jesus becomes not only necessary, but sufficient, all sufficient. He becomes your source of joy. You thought at one point that money and power, your sex life, these things would increase your options in life, increase your, your potential, increase your worth, increase your joy when you realize later on that they have nothing to do with increasing your options and your potential and your joy and your worth. These things no longer become your source of joy because you realize they can't fulfill you in that way. They fail to fulfill you in that way. They actually sometimes decrease your options, your potential your joy, and your worth. Staying married to a woman who is pregnant with a baby that does not belong to you, this is not the culturally right thing to do. But Joseph decides to stay with Mary. He takes on tremendous risk. Not to, initially, he wanted to stay with her and then divorce her quietly. But he eventually takes her in, stays, remains with Mary. Tremendous risk. He observes tremendous risk. Why does he do that? The reason why Jesus overturns our values is because he overturns our fears. That's our second point. What does he do to our fears? Joseph was about to break up with Mary. 
but he plans to do it quietly. He doesn't want to risk any more shame to Mary than she's already probably experiencing in her life. So he wants to do it the right way. And the Bible here, the text here, it says that, that it's because he's a righteous man. But if you notice, the angel doesn't say, when the angel comes to Joseph, he doesn't challenge Joseph's sense of right and wrong. It says Joseph's a righteous man. He understands right and wrong. The angel doesn't come to Joseph and say, Joseph, the right thing to do is to stay married to Mary. That's not what he says. The angel challenges Joseph's fear. He says, do not be afraid. Verse 20, do not be afraid. The angel doesn't challenge Joseph's knowledge, his understanding of history. It says he's a son of David. So he understands the prophecies. He understands scripture very well. Joseph is a very religious person, but he doesn't challenge him based on his knowledge. He challenges his fear. In other words, what he says is, Joseph, you're a coward. You know what a coward is? Everybody has fears. Just because you have fears, it doesn't make you a coward. But a coward is someone who lives life, bases his actions and decisions around his fears. That's a coward. That's what a coward is. What did Joseph fear? What did he fear? What was he afraid of? Joseph and Mary were about to get married out of wedlock. In a society that, that really upheld virtues, you know, of, of chastity, you know, and, and this is really going to push Joseph into social marginalization as well. Not only is Mary going to become an outcast, but through this, Joseph knows the longer he stays with Mary, right, the longer he stays with Mary, he's going to risk becoming uh, socially marginalized as well. Societal sins get transferred. Shared with this probably at some point before, when you were in high school, you had, um, you know, you had your own circle of friends, Now, in every high school, this is absolutely throughout every high school, you have children or people or youth who are very, very popular and people who are really unapproved, unacceptable, deemed unacceptable, untouchable. What happens when a person in a popular crowd wanders over to a person in a non-popular crowd and starts to get into a relationship with them? What happens? Well, inevitably what happens is both sides look at the other person and say, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Do you know know what's going to happen to you? You are committing probably the biggest social sin in high school when you do that. Joseph knows that societal sins get transferred. And so the longer he stays with Mary, that sin gets transferred over to him. He's going to become outcast. They're both poor. They're both likely illiterate people in an illiterate culture of society. They're not a part of high society. They are not rich. Joseph is not highly regarded in his, in his extended community, but he's regarded among the small crowd that he's in, that religious crowd that believes in God. They had nothing but their community. Joseph and Mary had nothing but their community, nothing to bank on. He was a carpenter from a humble home, illiterate, nothing that garnered any type of respectability in his life. His friends and his culture, his community with all that he has. And he's about to lose it. And so his original, his original plan was to get married and let Mary go quietly. Mary's life is ruined. It's done deal. Her, her reputation, her state status in her community, over. Done deal. But this is Joseph's way of pretty much salvaging some sense of social capital in his own right. Because it's its only asset. And it says, Joseph is a righteous man. That's what the text says. The Greek word for 
Righteous here connotes a sense of justice. Joseph had a sense of justice. And so because he lived morally right, because he was religious, you know, because he was the descendant of King David, he was accepted. He was acceptable in, in his small group of friends, in his small community. And so he wants to let Mary go quietly. Now, why do we do that? Why do we live? We, Joseph, in, ex- in essence, is making decisions because he's a righteous person. He's a, he's, he, he knows what right and wrong is. He's just. In a very religious way, he knows. Why do we tend to live good lives? Why do we do that? We tend to focus on being irreligious, the irreligious people, the people who are mixed into the city and live very, very poor lifestyles. We tend to look at them and say, well, I'm very, very different from them. But the thing is, the gospel doesn't just challenge why we live the bad side of our lives, our anger, our pride, our blatant acts of injustice at times. The Bible challenges also why you live good lives. You know what religion is? Religion is I live right on the outside so that I feel good about myself on the inside. That's religion. To be religious is to say that I live acceptable lives on the outside, an acceptable lifestyle on the outside so that I could be acceptable, so I could feel acceptable, so I can feel worthy on the inside. That's a culture of fear. What you're doing there is you're breeding a culture of fear. What you're promoting and you're living out of fear. You're afraid of what other people are going to say about you. And in turn, other people fear you about what you're going to say about them. That's, that's what religion is. Religion, at, at the heart of religion, at the heart of a religious lifestyle is fear. It's a sense of unworthiness. You feel so guilty and so unworthy, you figure, if I just live right on the outside, I'll be acceptable before other people and before God. It breeds fear. Joseph's the kind of person that lives right so that he would further himself above other people who probably live right so that he can feel less bad about himself. Goodness to gain acceptance from other people, ultimately from God. You feel like God loves you or accepts you because you're good. Now, what happens? Religious people, here's an indicator if you're a religious person, here's an indicator that you're religious, is if you crumble, if you fall apart when things are, bad things are said about you, when you fall apart amidst rumors or talk about you, if you react harshly because people are saying bad things about you, it's because you're living a life wanting approval. And, and as a result, religious people, they just, they're just devastated. The, the, you know, the Josephs of the world, if they could connect it to people, if they experience situations like Mary, what Mary is involved in, they just fall apart, devastates them. Religious people never take social risks. They're risk-averse. Why? Because if you make a mistake, it's the fear of disappointing other people, possibly disappointing God. You can be incredibly irreligious, but if you're afraid to take social risks, you know, it's fear that's driving your religious life, your righteous life. Do you see that? The gospel doesn't just challenge why we do bad things. That's easy. That's obvious. In fact, if you look at throughout Scripture, it's usually the people who live bad lifestyles that t- come to Christ first. It's the people who live religious lifestyles that often, over time, you know, they just consistently miss it. They don't get it. Even Nicodemus, 
Even Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he's a Pharisee. He lives a righteous life. He comes to Jesus at night and he's seeking. He's a seeker. He's actually different from the other Pharisees that are around him. He actually genuinely wants to know Jesus. But even he had to go back and it took a long time for him to process the things that Jesus said. The Bible consistently shares and shows us and demonstrates that the religious have a harder time coming to understand grace and the love of God before the irreligious. Being with Mary is hazardous to Joseph's status, his reputation, his religious status. It was all he had. And the possibility of losing that created fear in his life. And what the text is saying here is this. We don't always do wrong things out of fear. We actually do a lot of right things. Probably, we probably do more right things out of fear as well. And, and, and that's dangerous because if you live that way, if you live the right way without being melted into the heart of God, it becomes, very, it becomes a subversive excuse to mask your fear. Religious people are afraid to share about their fear to share about their flaws, to share about their sinfulness, to share about their guilt. And what you do is, you know why? Because you're afraid it's going to lose your status. It's going to be the thing that, that's going to be the thing that's going to upend you and you're going to lose approval, lose acceptance from people. And, and, and ultimately, it's the same reasons why we do wrong things anyway out of fear as well. That's why we lie. That's why we cheat. Because we don't want to lose status. We don't want to lose acceptance. We don't want to, we don't want to lose the very things that garner these things for us. And if you live a lifetime that way, you, you may gain status, you may gain approval, you may gain acceptance in life, but you're going to burn out and you're not going to have joy. You're not going to have joy in your life. You're going to live incredibly angry lives, bitter lives. You're going to take it out on, on the church. You're going to take it out on your pastors. You're going to take it out on your families and you, because you're just so bitter. And that, that kind of life, it's never going to be dynamic. It's never going to be dynamic. It's never going to change you. The gospel, on the other hand, is inside out. Jesus has come near into my life. Despite how unworthy I am, despite my failed attempts at living a good life, it's always flawed, you know, deep inside. And, and despite that, you could be a poor, illiterate, socially outcast husband of a baby mama, and yet so, socially broken, financially broken, culturally broken, educationally unacceptable, and yet, God has chosen to come near. God has chosen to enter into your life. It completely blows away your paradigm of fear. Fear, completely blown away. Because your acceptance, the cosmic acceptance, the reason why we're afraid of one another's approval is because we desire the ultimate approval. And yet you've already received it. You already have it. His acceptance is not based on your success or the way you live your life or your failure to obey, and that breeds tremendous confidence. You can have confidence in life, knowing you can take a shot at things. Even if you're afraid of messing up, you can take a chance because you're overwhelmed by God's goodness in your life. That's why trusting, perfect love, casts out fear. You want acceptance, you want love. Jeremiah 31, 13. I have loved you with an everlasting love. We read in Isaiah chapter 9 earlier in the call to worship that he is everlasting father who says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Tremendous courage. You can have tremendous courage. You can have an otherworldly power. Why? Because think about this. The same power 
that brought Jesus into Mary's life. He's literally, he's literally in Mary's life. The same power that brought Joseph into the world is actually living and active and breathing in you. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? What does that do to your fear? We say, you know, I can't change. We beat ourselves up every day because we, we, we fail at obeying, even when we're at our best. And that's not too different from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. He says, at my best. This is Paul at the spiritually highest point probably in his life and career as a minister. In jail, ready to die, says, I, at my best, I am flawed. I am broken. He actually doesn't even use those words. He says, I am a wretched man. And he says, my, this is myself, this person is a body of sin. That's what he says. This body of death. That's what he calls it. And he says, who can save me? This is him at his peak. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I am in your life because you are broken, because you are flawed. You need this and I want to give you me. That's what he's saying. You need me in your life and I want to give you my life. Sets you free. Sets you free. You don't have to be this certain type of person when you walk into those doors. The same power that brought Jesus into the world is living and powerful in your life. I'm going to read verses 20 to 23. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus Entering into Mary's life, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus entering into your life. A lot of us here right now suffering. Suffering in guilt, suffering in brokenness, suffering in just every which way. We could be suffering physically. We can be suffering, you know, you, know, in, you know, because of our guilt. We can be suffering because of relationships, relational issues in our lives. You know what that means? Jesus is entering. He's coming close. He's coming near. If you look at it one way, it looks like punishment because of things that you've done wrong, consequences of sin. And that very well could be true, but you know what that also means? Jesus is coming into your life. He's coming closer. And when it comes closer, that's the spirit that's active and living inside your life, in your life. It should drive out fear. It should challenge the things that you value, upend them, overturn them, and it should also challenge the things that you're afraid of. That's the reason why you have these values. You value sex, you value money, you value power. In our day, those are the Holy Trinity. If you hold on to those things, why do you hold on to it? Because if you don't have those things, you will lose security. If I don't have these things, I'm going to lose this, lose acceptance, lose approval. You know, the gospel challenges your values because it challenges your fears. Now, how do you get the gospel? How do you get the gospel? How do you get Jesus? How do you see Jesus in your life? You have to see what Jesus does to your shame because it takes a certain kind of courage to obey. I mean, Joseph, living in fear, the only community that he's got, the only asset that he has, the angel is literally challenging those very assets. And he says, you know what? I know that this is the one thing that you think that you have. I want you to give it up. I want you to not be afraid that you're going to lose these things. That's what he says. I want you to have courage, Joseph. He's encouraging him. 
He's challenging him. He says, stop being a coward. How do you gain that kind of courage? Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. In fact, verse 25, he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph decided, resolved after this encounter, not to break up with Mary, to stay with her. He resolved to stay with her. He resolved to marry her. In fact, you don't see him speeding up the wedding day. My logical, perverted, you know, corrupt brain would say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rush this wedding as soon as possible so that it will look like that baby is my baby. That way I can salvage and preserve the status that I have. I can take a shot at that. Joseph doesn't do that. In fact, it says he goes the other way. He doesn't even have a union with her until after the baby's born. Number one, he knows. People are good mathematicians. They can do the math and they can figure out that, wait a second, the math doesn't add up. The nine months, it doesn't work out here. But on the flip side, you know, Joseph realized something amazing. And what he realized helped him overcome his fear and it would help us overcome our fear. Why would Joseph, this religious person, afraid to sacrifice his status, his reputation, his community, why is he ultimately willing, over just in an instant, why is he willing to sacrifice his status and his reputation and his community? Joseph saw who was coming into the world. The angel says, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This person in Mary is going to come into the world and save God's people from their sins. Seeing that, you know, Joseph saw who was coming into the world. And seeing that, he saw something about Mary. He saw Mary. Something about Mary that completely changed his life, completely shaped him as well. Mary is sacrificing her status, her life, her reputation, her community for Joseph's sins. Why was Joseph so compelled to sacrifice his status? It's because he, the stronger one, right? The socially higher one. He saw Mary willing to sacrifice her reputation, her status, her community for him, for him. The weaker one is sacrificing all that she's got left for him to bring Jesus into the world. In other words, Mary was substituting her status so that Joseph ultimately will have true status. Mary is going to substitute her reputation. Why? So that Joseph is going to get true reputation a real reputation, one that will never die, one that could never be tainted. Mary is going to substitute her community. Why? So that Joseph would one day have perfect community. Perfect community. Joseph was the son of David. He's in a community, a very religious community. He was well aware of the prophecy of the son of David who would rise up in that lineage and come and save the people from their oppression, save the people from their sins. He was waiting the king. Advent. It's the coming of Advent. He's living it out real time. He's expecting this grand entrance of this king, one who would be the second David. What he didn't expect was that this Jesus, 
the son of David, would come in shame, in the context of disgrace. And his world is turned upside down, and then he saw Mary. His world is becoming completely upside down, and then he sees Mary. Mary's world is being turned completely upside down for him. He was, she was doing it for Joseph's sins too. Do you see that? The penny dropped. All of a sudden, the penny dropped. Everything all of a sudden makes sense. The child that Mary was bringing into the world was coming into Joseph's world to save Joseph. Do you see that? Through Mary, Joseph was getting a glimpse of the gospel. And everything was changing. What's the gospel? Who is Jesus? Mary's sacrifice was really just a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that Mary's son, Jesus, will make. Jesus came into the world. Why? To empty himself, not to fill himself. To empty himself so that, he, so that we could receive the Holy Spirit. Philippians chapter 2. Allow me to read Philippians chapter 2. This is the Apostle Paul. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider himself equal, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, born into the world, not to gain status, not to gain a reputation, not to gain approval, not even to gain a community in a sense, but to lose status, to lose reputation. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have lost now my community. All that I have, my only asset is the Father. That's the only thing that I value in life. It's the only thing I cherish in life. It's the only thing that I want in life, and I've lost it. I've given it up. It's been sacrificed. It's done. It is finished. He would empty himself of everything, including his rights as God's son. God literally turned his face from him, literally, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You forgot me. You rejected me. You've turned away from me. You've disowned me. Why? So that we, we could be his children. We could have the status Jesus had. We could have the reputation that Jesus holds in the highest of the heavens. We could be his sons. We could be his children. That's why he gave it up. I've lost God's presence. Jesus is entering into your life. Why? Because Jesus exited from God's, God exited from Jesus' life. Do you see that? Do you trust that? When Jesus enters into your life, your values, your fears, your shame, all three turned upside down together. The only reason why your values will change it's because your fears have changed. The only reason why your fears are going to change is because your shame has been turned upside down. Jesus has taken it up. He's traded reputations with us, breathes tremendous confidence, takes away fear because of his love. We're not forced into it. We're melted into it. Do you see that? Why do I fear losing my job in any given day? I mean, your fears are literally a gateway to what you value. Why do I fear losing my job? you got to do the why game. Why do I fear losing my job? Well, if I lose my job, I lose money. Why do you fear losing money? Well, because if I lose money, I lose security. Why do you, why do you fear losing security? That's it. Then that's what, if that's what it is, if that's what's at the end of the why game, that's what you value. But you would have tremendous confidence and boldness 
if you realize that the one security that you have that's everlasting is the love of God for you. That is your security. If that, if that transfer takes place, well, your job is important, but you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear to the end. There will be other jobs. There will be provision because I've loved you with an everlasting love. It allows you to take risks, tremendous risks. When the gospel comes in, it replaces the core values of your heart as the core value. You no longer have to compare yourself with other people. You no longer have to step all over, over people to gain a reputation, to gain status, to increase your pedigree. You don't have to do all those things because when the gospel comes in, you no longer have to work to earn any of these things because the love of God has entered into your life and has come near. God has draw, drawn you in. That is an amazing thing. How amazing is that? Tremendous courage that breeds. That's the first thing that the gospel does. The second thing the gospel does is it allows you to surrender then your attempts at being righteous on your own. Every one of us here is afraid of losing acceptance from somebody in this room. Every one of us. And, that, and if, if we continue to do that here as a community, our community will fall apart. We will cease being a gospel-centered community. The, it, it becomes the opposite of the gospel. We become a culture of religion, a culture of fear. You know what I love about planting this church? We as a people can come in and say that we are completely broken. And I have no reason to love any one of you because I don't know most of you. I'm just getting to know most of you. We've only been three months old. But we can say, I can take the risk to actually share my life with you. And you can take the risk to share your life with me. We can surrender. We can, let's cut the, the business. Showing how good we are. We can actually be honest about our brokenness in our marriages, in our parenting, our failures as students, our failures as friends in relationship with one another. We can, be, we can surrender your attempts at just being righteous on our own. How do you know this? Here's verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph wakes up the next morning, names the child Jesus. By remaining with Mary, Joseph surrenders his right to even name his own child. Now, all of you who are parents, and anyone who's not a parent, if you actually looked at the quote in the first page of the bulletin for that matter, you know, today, the concept of naming your child, it's the first act that we do as parents the first act of, of being a parent, exercising your authority and your, your oversight of this child is to be able to name him. We believe names have predictive powers, don't we? We all believe that, even though we know that, well, you know, what's in a name? But research has shown, you know, research has shown, you know, the societal power of a name, the cultural power of a name. Joseph sacrifices his ownership over the child. He names him the name Jesus. He didn't give him that name. The angel, God told him, this is what you're going to, he's surrendering his rights. He's surrendering his authority. He's surrendering his, his, uh, his ownership over the child and saying, Lord, this is yours. This is your child. You're going to name him and I'm just going to exercise that. By taking Joseph's right to name the child, you know, Joseph's going to receive all the suffering, all the alienation, all the outcast nature of his society, that's what he's going to experience. And yet he can't even name the child his own name. And what God is saying is, 
I am in control. I am Lord. It feels like death. You know, giving up control, I am a control freak, and as a result, I worry about everything. I am a coward. I am the greatest coward here in this place. You have, if you have any idea what it took to even get here and draw us together in this community, it's a miracle for me. It's a miracle because I went through so many stages of fear. Actually, over the last two years, I experienced probably four or five different stages of fear. And each time, the fears would go away and new fears would arise. Either go away, new fears would arise, go away. And actually, now I'm starting to re-experience some of the fears that I thought had gone away because I am a coward. And if I'm afraid of that, and there are many reasons why. We can sit and we can tell you all the different types of fears that I have, and they're still very, very real and very, very alive. Every one of us here has fears. Jesus is saying here, I am Lord. I am control. It feels like death, giving up control. By not being able to name his child and naming him who Jesus is meant to be named, what God is telling us here is every single time you try to take matters into your own hands, you know what you're doing? You're ceasing, you're preventing Jesus being named Jesus. Every single time that you live, you try to live a good life to show people this is how good of a person I am so that I can feel just a little bit better about myself, you are taking away from the name of Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. We do that in very clever ways, very subtle ways. Every single time you justify yourself. Every single time you get defensive about your your flaws and when people bring up your flaws to you. Every single time, even when they say something that is completely false about you, rumors and gossip, your devastation, what you do is you're taking away the name of Christ, the name of Jesus. Most of us, you know what happens? Because most of us come to Jesus. We still think, even though we say, you know, Jesus is Jesus. He has saved my life. He has saved me from my sin. But if you think about it, most of us, what we really want is Jesus just to be a teacher, for him to be a role model, for him to be a religious leader in our lives. That's what we expect. That's what Joseph expected. He will, you will name him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Will you replace whatever you think Jesus is in your life at any given moment and replace him with the name that God had given him for our sake? Will you do that this week? Every single time you get into an argument, every single time, you know, somebody says something bad about you, every single time you get into a fight with your spouse, every single time, you know, your, your, your pride is hurt, Will you remember the name Jesus? Will you remember the name Jesus? And let there be confidence and boldness and humility because some of those things are true. Let there be humility. And that will melt you into the love of God, into the grace of God. Can you do that this week? In the season of Advent, can we remember Christ brought into the world to draw near to his people. It's going to get messy at times. It's messy. It's very messy. 